you would, turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the second epistle to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians and chapter 5. Second Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and this evening we'll commence our reading there at verse 1. The Word of the Living God. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved. We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God. And I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but but give you occasion to glory behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. And rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, Be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let's further reading of God's holy word. May he bless us under these public readings of it. The second epistle to the Corinthians was written in a moment of incredible crisis. Sometime between the years 56 and 57, there in the midst of the apostles' third missionary journey, the church was under incredible duress. In that nine-month span between the summer of 56 and the spring of 57, the church was faced really all throughout the Mediterranean with several several crises. And the apostle bore them all. Part of his missionary work in this third missionary journey is to go out and to strengthen those churches. And so we find Paul doing just that. As we trace his steps through Acts 19 and Acts 20, we, we see there the apostle urgently going to the, to the young, to the fledgling churches in Christ and, and tendering to them the encouragement that they required. You also re- remember that this third missionary journey has principally in view as well the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. You perhaps remember that in Acts 11 it was prophesied that under Emperor Claudius there would be a general dearth throughout the land. And one of the responses to that was that as the apostle went from Gentile church to Gentile church, a collection was taken to relieve those who suffered in that famine, especially those in Jerusalem. In Romans 15, the epistle written immediately after he wrote the second epistle to the Corinthians here, the apostle tells us why he did that. You remember the church in Jerusalem, it was from them that the gospel went forth to the churches, or what would become the churches of the Gentiles. Well, says the apostle, if they had benefited so from the church in Jerusalem, surely it stood to reason that the church in Jerusalem would benefit from the temporal things from the churches of the Gentiles. But thirdly, this missionary journey is not only marked by encouragement, marked by this earnest endeavor to to relieve the suffering saints in Jerusalem, but it's also marked by incredible affliction. You remember back uh, to your previous readings of this epistle, you'll remember that the apostle was in very poor health at this juncture. In the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, you'll find there the apostle buffeted in his body. You'll find him a man who is suffering and under his frail frame brought to real duress. But there's more to that. In fact, in one way, we are to see that as the least of the man's sufferings here. You recognize that the servant of God comes before us in the very second chapter. And he reiterates that his principal concern was for the well-being of this church in Corinth. Of course, he looks to events that had gone by, those events that had prompted occurrences that that occasioned the, the first epistle that he wrote to them. He's anxious to see how it is with them. The apostle takes this quite personally. Their well-being to him is, is a matter of the greatest concern. And so he describes himself as one burdened. But thirdly, and this brings us to our text this evening, the apostle was also concerned about the churches in Corinth because of a general plague that had, a, that had really fallen upon all of the churches of the Gentiles at this juncture. You see, what we can put together from the New Testament is that in Jerusalem, 
which at that time was the epicenter of Christian persecution. There was, as it were, a kind of, of capital, a center, if you will, of operation for the Judaizers. And from Jerusalem, Judaizers send their so-called evangelists to all of those churches that had already professed faith in Christ. And, friend, that's part of the reason why the collection for the saints in Jerusalem was so necessary. You see, the Jews were pleased to relieve their own, and they were pleased to relieve the Judaizers, because in both cases they found those who kept the ceremonial code. But for those saints in Jerusalem who had professed faith in Christ, who were not Judaizers, they had no public support. Their families had rejected them. And so they were reliant upon the collection the apostle was taking. But the second element, as he writes to them, urging the church in Corinth to contribute to that collection for the relief of the church of Jerusalem, the second principal point here is to confront the Judaizers who were contradicting his apostleship. And really, the first section of this second epistle to the Corinthians is devoted to that point. But in perhaps a way that might surprise you, Really, from chapter 2, 14, all the way to the 7th verse of chapter 7, the apostle stresses the highness, the dignity of the apostleship. But he does so through contrast. Chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, all of these chapters are filled with clear statements about Paul's infirmities, his own weakness, and the intrinsic impossibility for the apostle to do anything good for any soul apart from the grace of God. As I said, it's a contrast. The highness of the apostleship set against the infirmities that face the apostles. And so in this fifth chapter, he continues that. Now, in this section, he urges the efficacy of the apostleship, and he shows that all of this comes from the finished work of Christ. Chapter 5, 14 to 19 He traces all back to Christ, him who had wrought redemption, and that being the foundation of all ministerial success. But our text this evening is probably the most familiar part of this section. It's what you have there in the 20th verse. I want you to notice there, the apostle says this, we are ambassadors for Christ. This is something of a conclusion Uh, that the apostle comes to with regard to the apostleship. This is, as it were, his final and most direct statement to the Judaizers. We, he says, are ambassadors of Christ. And he's stressing there the ambassadorial element. You remember that apostle means sent one. Well, ambassador means a legal representative. And what the apostle is saying there is, Well, he's really highlighting the highness, the dignity of the office, isn't he? There may be many who are sent ones in a human sense, in a civic sense. But there are few who are called ambassadors. That's a high calling. And yet the apostle says he is an ambassador of none other than Christ. But the Judaizers claim what they will. He is Christ's, one of Christ's legal representatives. But then he says this, what does this ambassador do? He says, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. 
So that's the function of his ambassadorship. He is Christ's legal representative, and as such, he beseeches, prays sinners to take hold of Christ. Now I want you to notice, friend, that those are two lines that are set in parallel, and all of that is for emphasis. But you and I could easily translate those words, beseech and pray to, if we were to do so in the vernacular, would be something like urge, implore, and even beg. This is a weighty text. In many ways, a shocking text. Familiar to us, I know it is. But genuinely one that that should make us pause. Here, as the ambassador of Christ, the apostle comes in the name of God, in the name of Christ, imploring sinners to be reconciled to God. Just briefly, friend, the apostleship we all know was an extraordinary office. It was one that was only to last for a time. And, friend, of course, there were extraordinary elements to that office that are non-repeatable. But that office also contained within it ordinary functions, such as preaching. Now, what's interesting is if you look at this text, we'll find that the apostle here is not invoking something that was extraordinary to his office. I want you to notice just, for instance, the word beseech in our text. It's the word parakaleo in the Greek, perhaps a word you're familiar with. I want you to notice that there are two texts where that, where that, where that word appears that are really telling. Take one from 2 Timothy. There the apostle says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. That's again our word parakaleo, with all long-suffering and doctrine. Romans 12 gives another example. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on ministering. He that exhorteth, again, parakaleo, on exhortation. I want you to notice that the beseeching work that is in our text this evening is something that the apostle says will continue right throughout the history of the church. The beseeching that is here is not something that will die with the apostles. It's something of perpetual standing in the church of God. Now, friend, if we put all of that together, as we warm very briefly to our principal theme this evening, what this text teaches us is that God pleads with sinners through faithful preaching. He pleads with sinners through faithful preaching. And I want us to look at the origin of that pleading. And then secondly and finally, I want us to look on the obligation that it confers on those who hear it. So take, first of all, the origin. Now, We find here, of course, the apostle describes himself as an ambassador of Christ. He is describing himself using language that would be quite familiar to those uh, who understand politics then and now, and that is that he stands as Christ's legal representative, as one acting in the king's name. That's fine, but what does he do? As though God did beseech you by us, in Christ's Instead, the apostle speaks. Now, friend, what's striking about this passage is the apostle is saying that that ambassadorial language was not a poetic flourish 
This is not, as it were, a vapid kind of, kind of, kind of flowery language. It wasn't that at all. No, the apostle really means that as he faithfully undertakes his calling, in this calling sinners to come to Christ, he is standing as Christ's representative. Now friend, as an ambassador, what you and I recognize is this, that a true, a faithful ambassador, he formally represents what the king would do if the king were bodily present. An ambassador faithfully doing his work, as the apostle describes himself here, is to be taken as one who acts as the king would act if the king were personally and bodily present. Now, friend, if that's the case, then this text is staggering indeed. Because what does the apostle do? In the name of God and in Christ's stead. He implores sinners to come to him. I want you to recognize, friend, that this is not just the content of his message that he tells us of here. He tells us something about the manner of his work. His is a pleading ministry, an urging ministry. And as can be justly translated in this text, even in one sense, a begging ministry. Now, why is he doing this? Well, friend, an unfortunate call such as this, of course, is what the apostle himself has been commanded to do by God. And if you remember the text that we've just cited, you recognize that it was part of the apostolic calling to do so. But we need to go further than that, don't we? Certainly we must, because all of that calling flows from God. And so we need to ask the question, why is this imploring something that God has enjoined on his messengers? And friend, the answer is one that's readily at hand. Take the themes that we've contemplated even last week. Take texts like that that you have from the prophet Ezekiel. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Friend, therein lies the foundation of this imploring ministry. Therein lies the call that came upon the apostles and all faithful preachers of the gospel to beseech sinners, as Christ describes in the parable, to compel them to come in. Friend, the source of that imploring is from God's delight, His complacency in the work of redemption. His desire to have sinners take hold of Christ and to find their reconciliation. Friend, it comes from the fact that the God who has commissioned the apostle is a God, as Micah says, who delights in mercy. Oh, friend, this is a staggering text. To quote to you again what Manton says on that chapter in Ezekiel 33. You and I are to learn, says Thomas Manton, is this, that mercy, like live honey, droppeth from God of its own accord. He is forced to wrath. It is wrested from him. God's primary end is the conversion of a sinner. 
And secondary end, the honor of his vindictive justice. If you want the references for that, I can give them to you. And friend, with one voice, the Reformed have said this throughout the ages. Our God delights in mercy. Delights, staggeringly as this text teaches, even to plead with sinners through his servants that they would take the mercy that is tendered to them. And at this point then, friend, we have no analogy to what this text is showing us. I want you to recognize that. Here, God has commissioned his preachers to implore sinners to come to him. The king implores the rebels that they might take his pardon. Friend, we understand that in the reverse. We understand that a conquered rebel force would would certainly supplicate for some terms, seek some pardon. But where have we ever read of a king who delighted to plead with rebels that they would take the pardon that he is willing to give? But where do we read that? We don't. And and yet the text tells us that when this beseeching is done, it is to be done in God's name as though Christ were there. It is to be received as God's pleading with sinners. As though Christ were present. It's so to be received. Friend, this is a shocking text. Because what the apostle says is this imploring that you hear of me. Friend, you should regard that as what Christ himself would do if he stood bodily in your midst. I, says Paul, speak this in Christ's stead. I, he says, as though God did beseech you by us, cry, be reconciled to God. But finally, as we close, friend, obviously behind this, is a weighty obligation. You see, as he describes himself as the ambassador of Christ, he he is making that that very legal statement that that he is Christ's representative in this moment. He's speaking. He's speaking and so to be received as one speaking on Christ's behalf. Well, friend, if you think of what an ambassador does, what he does in the faithful execution of his office is to be regarded as the king's actions. Well, the, the, the entailment from that, for those who refuse the commands of the ambassador, is that their refusal is regarded as a rebellion against the king himself. Their refusal to obey the ambassador executing his office is regarded as an affront to the king as though he personally were there. And that's the legal implications that flow from this text. Yes, God has enjoined his preachers to implore sinners to come. Such is God's delight in saving sinners. But when that imploring meets with resilience... When, when these pleadings are met with recalcitrance, that unbelief is regarded as a personal affront to Christ. Their rejection is regarded 
as a personal insult to the Lord. And Christ speaks this himself in Luke 10. He says there, He that heareth you heareth me. And he that despiseth you despiseth me. And, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. I want you to note that, that he's not referring there to the twelve disciples. It's given to the seventy. This is something that belongs to all of those who are faithful preachers of the gospel. Christ says in this moment, their rejection, the rejection of his preachers who are faithfully preaching his word, he regards as a personal rejection of himself. Such is the legal connection that Christ sees between his messengers and himself. And friend, you remember how Christ deals with Capernaum with all of those cities wherein he ministered. At the end of his public ministry, when, when all was refused, he, he said that truly, Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon, all of these places were less guilty because they didn't hear the voice of Christ. A friend, for how many centuries have these islands heard the voice of Christ? How, for how long has the Atlantic world sat under the voice of Christ through faithful preaching? And what this text teaches us, friend, is that in their beseeching sinners to be reconciled to God, God sees that, that unbelief that they so often met with, as a personal rejection of Him, as though Christ Himself were present to see their unbending countenances, to hear their, 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 their voices that lack all contrition. He regards all of that as a personal affront. And so, friend, the command is a solemn one. As much as it is... I suppose as we leave this text, then the first and the principal question I have to ask is, do you, friend, do you really believe that God pleads with you through faithful preaching. That through the, the faithful proclamation of His Word, it is as though Christ were speaking to you. So the Second Helvetica Confession reminds us of. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God preached. Friend, do you believe that? If that's the case, then, then how do we come under the preaching of God's word? And even more than that, how are we responding to it? Are we responding any differently than if the incarnate Christ were preaching to us this evening? Well, friend, there is a point of comfort in this text that we'd be remiss to pass over. It's one I think that we often lose as we look at this passage. In this passage, you and I are reminded that God has not only procured redemption for his people, and he not only offers it freely to sinners. No, friend, it's as though this text tells us that that's not far enough. No, God must not only procure, he must not only offer sinners this mercy. Through his messengers, he must plead with sinners to take it. 
Friend, I don't know about you, but there's hardly anything more staggering for you and I to meditate on this evening. He is not, he is not pleased, friend, only to make a way. But he goes so far as to implore sinners to comply. And all of this is expressive of a truth that you and I, we've meditated on before. In the words of James Durham, we can see in this text the same truth. Christ is graciously pleased to account it satisfaction to him for all of his soul travail, to have sinners making use of him for their good. And then note this. He accounts it sufficient reward if we will but give him our souls to be saved by him in his own way and will make use of his death and sufferings for that end. Note what he says there. It's nothing less than what you and I have in this text. That the Lord, through his messengers, pleads and genuinely implores with them Pleased to have sinners making use of him for their good. And even accounts it, as Durham says here, accounts it sufficient reward if we will but give him our souls. The exhortation from this passage then is to be reconciled. Friend, all things are ready. There's nothing that is lacking. All has been procured. More than that, the offer has been tendered promiscuously. And further still, God through his servants urges you as though he were personally and bodily present. The living Christ urges you to be reconciled to God. And so friend, there's nothing but your own unbelief that stands in the way. Nothing. All things are So says the apostle, be ye reconciled to God. The second exhortation, friend, from this passage is straightforward. It ties us to that somewhat lengthy historical introduction that I made. Note that in the midst of all of that crisis, personal and ministerial that the apostle faced, this is his preeminent cry. For all of the conflicts, the crises that he encountered, This is, as it were, the Apostle's greatest urging, his most emphatic desire. They would be reconciled. His his bodily health deteriorating, conflicts in the church multiplying, his apostleship traduced by Judaizers, still his great desire is that sinners would be reconciled to God. Do we have such a desire to see souls saved ourselves? This is, of course, friend, very much pointed to the minister of the gospel. But it's not just for them. Do we crave, even to the point of imploring with sinners, that they would come to Christ? Do we long for this? The Apostle does, and may it be, friend, that we as a congregation are known to have that same, that same heart, that same desire. Amen.